Well, if you'll turn in your notes, you have an outline. It's green, titled The Life of Contentment. That's, that will be what this session is about. Thank you. Oh, I have two waters. Courtney got me water. Okay, that's good. I can drink a lot of water up here. Actually, well, never mind. So just for a little recap before we get started, and then I have a quick video clip that I want to show you. Um, Our first session was about what contentment is, and we looked at what contentment is not because a lot of people have wrong ideas about what the word means, um, especially in Scripture. And so we looked at what it is not and what it is. And, and we said that ultimately contentment is a state of satisfaction in Christ. Now, if you just look up the Webster's Dictionary, it will tell you contentment, a synonym for contentment is satisfaction. But Christian contentment is more than that. It's satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. When I am contented in Christ, I don't have to have anything along with him to satisfy me, to give me peace and joy. That doesn't mean I'll always love my circumstances, but it's all good in Christ. I can trust him. I can be at peace. My hope is set in him. Don't you love the um, verse in Hebrews that talks about this hope that we have as an anchor for our souls? It's Jesus that it's talking about there. He is in the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God in heaven, like an anchor that I'm attached to and I belong to Christ. And so just like a ship's anchor holds it in place in a stormy sea, so that it doesn't lose its spot, it stays rooted to wherever that anchor is on the floor of the ocean, my anchor is in the very presence of God. And so no matter what storms happen in my life, Jesus is there, I'm hanging on to him. Actually, he's hanging on to me, right? If if it were only me hanging on to him, I'd be done for. But he's hanging on to me. And so no matter what storms come, I'm not going to lose my hope. In the presence of God, I'm headed right there where Jesus is. Eventually, for all eternity, that's where I'll be. And this little snippet of time will be a blink on the scale of eternity. So contentment is a state of satisfaction in Christ alone. Now, Carrie came up and talked to us about how we can fight for contentment. It's it's an active growing process. I don't just say, well, I'm not content, so Jesus hasn't done his job in me yet, right? No, the Lord doesn't work that way. He tells us to work with him. And in fact, that's one of the things that Paul says. We've been in Philippians a lot. And Paul tells the, the Philippian people that they are to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Now, they're already saved. He's saying, now, work it out. Make it show up. Grow in it. Don't just sit around, right? Be actively Becoming more and more like Jesus, living out more and more what he bought for you. That's what it means to work out your salvation. But then he says, so he says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. So how crazy is that? You work because God's working in you. So we've got both. The Lord is working in me, 
and I'm supposed to work with him to gain contentment. And so I put off all the things that distract me from Christ, everything that separates me from the Lord, everything that hurts my relationship with him, because I, don't, I, I love him more than anything else. See, that's where my contentment is. And so the more I love him, the more I want to put that stuff away because it is hindering me. And the more I want to put on more and more of Jesus. It's like, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I loved to wear my parents' clothes. And then my dad died, and he had these, we had these old black hand-stitched, I, I don't know what they were. They weren't really pajamas. It was something he wore in Vietnam when he was serving in the Vietnam War. It was like these Vietnamese pants and top cotton really cozy and after he died there was just such a comfort for me in wearing those well see that's putting on christ i just love putting on anything that's more like him because it makes me closer to him um and so now we're going to talk about some specific things that you can do very practically to put on contentment, to put off all the things that hinder and put on the things that will help us be more contented in Christ. And so the clip that I want to show you is is going to sound a little strange. It's from a British pastor in the 1930s or 40s. So it's an old recording. I think it's kind of cool. It, it's like it sounds like someone from World War II speaking. His, uh, the pastor's name is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, my husband and, and many of his dear friends love to read Martin Lloyd-Jones just as pastors because he's such an encourager for pastors. He has wrote a book specifically for them. One of his big things was teaching Christians who had lost their joy how to fight for it. He has a whole book on spiritual depression, which is a Christian who just doesn't feel close to the Lord and doesn't know what to do about it. Okay, so who better to listen to? I thought, well, he, you know, this man is in heaven with the Lord now. He's no longer living. Let's listen to what he has to say. And then we'll pick up and talk about some specific ways that I can grow in contentment. So here's Martin Lloyd-Jones. What do I mean? I mean this. 
this isn't a test. The Christian life alone is worthy of the name life. This alone is righteous and holy and pure and good. It's the kind of life that the Son of God himself lives. It's like God himself in his own holiness. You're not right to look at yourself like that, nor your life like that, nor anything you're doing like that. And if you think of your Christian living in any sense of or shape or form, with this sense of grudge or of task or of duty or of weariness, I say to you, go back to the beginning for a moment. How did you ever come into this Christian life? Here you are on this narrow way about which you're grumbling so much. How did you ever come from that broad way on which you were once walking? What's made the difference? And you ask that question and there's only one answer. I'll come from back to this. Because the only begotten Son of God left heaven and came down to earth, having divested himself of the insignia of his eternal glory, and humbled himself and was born as a babe and put in a manger and endured the light of his world for 33 years and was spat upon and reviled and had a crown of thorns thrust into his head and was nailed upon a cross and bore the punishment of my sins. That's all comes from that And if I ever find myself even for a fraction of a second doubting the greatness and the glory and the wonder and the nobility of this walk in which I may do, more burden and spitting upon it. Jesus, we come to you now, um, Father, every one of us confessing how lightly we often take what you purchased for us on the cross, how lightly we take the power of your resurrection that's working in us. Lord, I pray that you would begin a new work in us this moment, Lord Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Every moment in you is new, and we pray, Lord, that you would begin afresh to teach us how to live purposefully, intentionally, the abundant life that you purchased for us. Let us live it for your glory. Let it be strong and do your power honor. Let not silly little distractions so easily draw our faces away from your glory. Let us regard you as greater than that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So this is the the concept of contentment is something that the Lord's been teaching me on for a long time. But over the past few months, as we've been preparing for this retreat, I've been doing a lot of extra study. And if you could see my journals, you would not believe how many notes I have written in there. Um, There are so many different things I've written down that I need to remember for me. Because I'm so easily distracted. So easily distracted from Jesus, my joy. And so what I'm doing is I've just taken, I've boiled down all those notes into just four or five, 
main things that have helped me the most that I want to share with you, little how-tos, things to just check whenever my heart feels cold, whenever my love for the Lord feels cold. So the first one is I need to remember that the more I love Jesus, the more contented I'll be. Now, this all comes from the book of Philippians, so let's flip over there again. That's why it's called Philippians. (laughs) That's what happens when I don't get enough sleep. All right. So, Philippians 3. Remember, if you weren't here yesterday, we talked about how Paul wrote to the people of Philippi from prison. And he wasn't really sure what was going to happen to him. He knew that at some point uh, the Lord would take him home, that he would probably be martyred for his faith. But he wasn't sure if this was the time. Um, And so he's writing them in prison, and the people of Philippi are his church. He brought many of them to the Lord. He's trained them in the Word. And they're distraught because their beloved teacher, they consider him a father in the faith, is imprisoned for his faith. And so he's writing to them, telling them he's rejoicing. He's trusting the Lord. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Either way, I win. As long as I live, I get to live in him. When I die, I'm physically with him. I can't lose. I have joy. So you rejoice with me. That's the whole point of the whole letter, is for them to have joy that glorifies the Lord. So if you look at Philippians 3, and we're going to start with verse 7. He's been, he's been listing for them all of the reasons he would have to have confidence in himself. Now, let me tell you, when you go to the world and you tell them you don't feel confident or content, they're going to tell you you need self-esteem, right? They're going to tell you you need to think about your worth. And let me tell you, as long as you are navel-gazing and looking for your worth in here, good luck with that. Because we know in the deepest part of our hearts that we're not what we were created for. We were created for the glory of God. We've fallen, every one of us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that's not the end of the story. We're justified freely. We're made right with him freely by his grace that came to us, comes to us in Christ Jesus once we turn to him in faith. So my worth is in Jesus, and as soon as I learn that when those voices inside my head are saying, you're not worth anything, you're not worth anything, that I say, I don't have to be. Jesus is. There you go. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul said, I I died on the cross with Jesus. Jennifer, Jennifer's gone. There's no Jennifer, just Jesus. He's, he's bought me. I belong to him. So if there is no worth here in this Jennifer that belongs to Jesus, there must not be any worth in him because he bought me by his blood on the cross, right? My worth is in him. So I stop looking at what I accomplish or what other people think of me. I stop trying to build my self-esteem. Good luck finding that word in the Bible. We find Christ's esteem in the Bible. And when I get my eyes off me and I put them on him, it's miraculous. The peace that comes. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful what Jesus does. So Paul has been saying, if anyone has right to have confidence in the flesh, that would be Paul. 
Because everything that Jewish people thought you should be and do and accomplish, he'd done. But he says, starting in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That the, usually knowing Greek words behind things don't really, doesn't really help you that much. And I don't know the Greek language, but I have been taught that that Greek word used in the original, in the early manuscripts for rubbish means cow dung, cow manure, right? So anything that Paul could take glory in for himself, that's like filth to him compared with Christ, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." When I love Jesus that much, things can't really discontent me anymore. I love this saying. Some of you have heard me say it before. If all I ever wanted was Christ, then I'll always have all I ever wanted. It's when I want something more than Him or besides Him that I begin to lose my joy and my contentment, that I begin to deal with anxiety, that I start thinking about what God owes me or what other people owe me, and then I get angry. And I have all kinds of inward, simple emotions that start stirring up that start with my taking my eyes off of just Jesus alone being enough. Right? Jesus said in John 4, 14, Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Who's he talking to? He's talking to a woman who's going from one man to another man to another man, searching for contentment. And he knew her heart. The Bible says he knew what was in the hearts of men. And he knew her heart. And he's telling her that living water is contentment. It's satisfaction. He's saying you're not going to find it until you come to me. The water, he says, that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He said in John 15, 9 through 11, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Carrie shared this scripture with us. He says, Abide in my love. That means stay in it. Remain in it. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, why? That my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You want the best joy? (laughs) How about Jesus' joy? If his joy can be in me, I've got it made. And he said it just takes remaining in him, which means two things together, loving him and obeying him, keeping his commandments in love. That's how I abide in him. One without the other won't work. If I'm not obeying him, I'm really not loving him. He doesn't really have my heart. But if I have all of these emotions of love for him, but I'm not obeying him, those aren't real. That's not real love in his eyes. Okay. Oh, and the other, the flip side, if I'm obeying him, 
that I don't have any feelings of affection for him, that doesn't work either. How would you feel if your husband said, um, he doesn't really feel love for you, but don't worry, his love for you shows itself in the fact that he's just going to be faithful to you and, and stick with you in the marriage. Anyone want to hear that? I need my husband's affection, his feelings of love for me. And God's no different. He needs both. He desires, he expects both from his children, love and obedience together. Okay, so the first thing, if, if I want to be more contented, I need to grow in my love for Jesus. Second, the more I trust the Father, the more contented I'll be. Again, Philippians, flip over to Philippians 4, verses 5 through 7, actually 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, some versions say gentleness, sound-mindedness would be a good way to put that, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He's close. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So you see the link between trusting the Father and being at peace, having contentment. Um, I'll have... People tell me sometimes, I've had friends tell me that they're struggling with trusting their husbands. Just trusting their husbands to lead the right way. Trusting their husbands to make the right decisions. And something I think that the Lord wants us to understand is we don't really have to trust our husbands if we trust God. I can get my eyes off. I need to trust my husband. Don't misread that. But that's not my focus. My focus isn't on, is my husband going to get it right? Okay? Who do I think I am? Do I think I can take over and do a better job? I'm just as fallen as he is. But if my eyes are on the Lord, and I know that the Lord even controls the hearts of kings. The Bible says that he controls the hearts, the decisions of kings like a water course. He can handle the decisions my husband makes. He does not need my help. He can handle it. So if I'm not trusting my husband, the truth is I'm really not trusting the Lord. Because the Lord can handle my husband. I'm not trusting the Lord to lead and guide my husband. If my husband's lost, the Lord can still direct and guide his decisions. Even that's what he does with kings, the Bible says. He is sovereign. He is powerful over every. Everything that happens on this earth. So if I'm not trusting my husband, I'm not trusting the Lord. If I'm not trusting a friend, I'm really not trusting the Lord. If I'm thinking, I, I, we'll have women, you, you may have said this at some point, I've gone through a phase in my life where I felt lonely when we had moved to a new place. Um, and would be in large crowds of people as we were visiting churches and just feel like nobody was really friendly. Struggling with anger over that. And immediately as I prayed about it, the Lord worked on my heart. Am I trusting him? Can I trust him to work on the hearts of other people and give me the friends he wants me to have? Because you know what? He does ordain friendships. He does. And there are some people that it's not best for you to be friends with, even if they know the Lord. 
They could draw you where you don't need to go. Let the Lord control that, and you may need some time alone without a friend in your life to learn how to trust in Him completely. He is sovereign over it. Trust the Father's will. The more I trust the Father, the more contented I will be. And the more contented I am, the easier it is for me to yield to His will, as Sherry said earlier, to see it, to recognize it for what it is. To have hope and things don't go the way that I want. It's easier for me to relate with people rightly because I'm not being kind to this person to make them be what I want them to be or to get friendship out of them. That's kind of selfish, right? And I cannot really care whether they're a friend to me or not, and I can just love them like Christ. And all of a sudden, I find all kinds of blessings in my life when I trust Him first. There are several things I need to be trusting him for and so if you find that you're not content go through these things ask yourself first of all am i trusting him to provide is there something in my life that i'm thinking i need to get for myself because i'm not trusting him to do it or am i looking to another person thinking they need to get this for me maybe i have low self-worth i don't think i'm worth anything and so i'm looking to my husband expecting him to fix me and make me feel better. He can't do that. He's not God. That's, that's not fair <laughs> to expect that of anyone. Not of anyone. It's not fair to expect that of a friend, to expect a, a girlfriend to make you feel better about yourself, right? I've got to trust the Lord to provide in His way, in His time, but I have to be sure my heart is yielded to Him first before He will do it. Matthew six thirty one through 33, Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows, He knows, that you need them all. But seek first, our panel Use this one, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There's this little, one of the secrets in contentment, there's this secret in scripture, kind of a mystery, a paradox, that if I, if I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, instead of seeking joy and contentment, if I just seek the Lord, I'll get the Lord and contentment. But if I specifically seek contentment for its own sake, apart from the Lord, I will get neither him nor contentment. There's nowhere in scripture that says, blessed is the man who seeks contentment. Blessed is the man who seeks joy. Blessed is the man who seeks happiness. No. I'm to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness to get my eyes off of me, 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 and what I get out of it and just love him and trust him. And then lo and behold, the contentment and the joy come when I'm not even expecting them. That's how the Lord blesses. So I need to trust him to provide. I need to trust him to provide my emotional needs, peace, confidence, forgiveness, Comfort, healing. I need to trust him to provide financially. That may mean that I have to take some pretty significant steps of obedience to him, right, before he'll do that. But as long as I'm loving and obeying him, I can trust him to provide. Now, by the way, notice Jesus doesn't talk about... um, Jesus says for us to trust the Lord for our needs today. 
Not to worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will take care of itself. He doesn't just mean the future. Tomorrow, in 24 hours from now, is the future. I need to trust the Lord for right here and now where I am that he's giving me what I need. Tomorrow's not even guaranteed to me. But if he gives it, he'll give what I need along with it as long as I am in Christ. I need to trust him for my physical needs. I need to trust him for my relationship needs. I think that's, for us as women, one of the areas we experience lack of contentment the most. And we try to make relationships work on our own, and we make a big mess out of it. I can trust him to provide for my relational needs if I'm trusting him first and having my eyes on him. So besides trusting him to provide, I need to trust that he knows best. I love in Romans 9, it's actually quoting from the prophets, but it says, So what is, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? So what is formed? Say to him, you formed it. Why did you make me like this? You could also say, shall, shall, he who's formed say, shall he who's formed say to him who formed it, why did you give me that? Why did you do it that way? I can trust him to know he is omniscient. He knows all things. He is outside of time. So time isn't even a thing to him. He can see from this moment... 50 years ahead and 50 years behind and 1,000 years ahead and 1,000 years behind all at once. He's got a grand plan, all pointing to the glory of Christ, our Redeemer in the universe. And he's working it all together. And I don't even know a fraction of all of that. So I need to be still and know that he is God and he knows what he's doing. Third, I need to trust him to act in love. Aren't you thankful that not only do we have a powerful God, and not only do we have a God who knows everything, but we have a God who loves with the love of a father. Now, those who haven't had great fathers, that might be a little hard to picture, but you still know what a right father is supposed to look like. We know because the truth is written on our hearts. And our God has this fatherly love that never takes his eye off his children for one moment. He knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly how to make it happen. That's not me as a parent. I adore my children. And I know what they need, but I don't know how to always make it happen. I see the heart changes that need to happen to them, and all I can do is share Scripture with them and talk with them about the Lord and pray with them, but I can't change their hearts. The Lord can. So I've got this. We've got this loving Father who knows us, who has the power to do whatever needs to be done, and he adores his children. Trust his love. Fourth, trust him to work his will. Trust him to work his will. You know, if you know the story of Israel, of the Hebrews, they weren't even called Israel yet when they were in captivity in Egypt. And the Lord miraculously brings them out of slavery from Egypt. And it's just this amazing deliverance. You never would have thought it could happen. Thousands of them all parading out of Egypt. And one day after Pharaoh said no way over and over and over again would he let them go. And the Lord brings them out. Then Pharaoh and his men chase them down to kill them and the Lord cuts them off. And so you would think the people, if anyone could ever trust him, they could. Right? 
And yet, before they ever make it to where he wanted to take them, they're doubting him again. And they doubted him so much. They doubted his will. They get out into the wilderness and they say, Why'd you bring us out here to die? There's no water. Our children are going to die. Just let us go back to Egypt. And they murmured and complained so much that the Lord finally said, Okay, you want to die here? Good, you're going to. And I'll take your children in that you said I was going to let die here in the wilderness. I'll take them into the land I promised instead. So Israel will get the promised land, but it's going to go to your children that you said I brought out into the wilderness to kill. They did not trust his will. He was bringing them through the wilderness to prepare their hearts to worship him in the promised land. He knew them. Before their children went into that promised land, the Lord told them, once you get into this land, you will be prosperous because this is a nice land and you're going to be tempted to forget me once things go well, see? So he knows the hearts of people, and he was taking the people through the wilderness to teach them. He says in the Word, I brought you through the wilderness, and I fed you with manna from heaven so that you would learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He had a lesson he wanted them to learn. He had a reason that they were suffering and struggling through the wilderness. There was a beautiful end to it that they missed and didn't get to experience because they would not trust his will. That's sad. I've had my moments, so I can't look down on them. The Lord has been faithfully gracious to me to show me my sin over and over again, and he will continue to. Let's just... Fight to trust his will, even when we can't see what he's doing. Okay, thirdly, so we've said the more I love Jesus, the more contented I'll be. The more I trust the Father, the more contented I'll be. And third, the more actively, now that actively is the key word. You might want to circle it. The more actively I pursue Christ, the more contented I will be. Philippians 3, 12 through 14, we see this. Again, this is where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good purpose. So it is the Lord's desire that we be working to become more like Christ. I need to be working with the Spirit of God. Once I put my faith in Christ for forgiveness from sin, when I come to Him in repentance and faith, He places His Spirit in me. And one of the things His Spirit does is His Spirit works in me continually to conform me to the image of Christ, to make me more and more and more like Jesus until the day I stand with Him face to face. And the Bible says, I will be like Him, for I will see Him as He is. I'm not there yet. So in the meantime, the Spirit is working in me, but I'm supposed to work with Him. 
And if I'm not, and if I'm just sitting back and being complacent, I will not be contented because my father is too good a father to let me be contented that way. I'm outside of his will. He wants me working to become more like Christ, and he won't let me have joy and peace and contentment if I'm not. Right? So I need to be active to pursue Christ. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 tells us to lay aside everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, Paul, again in Philippians, Philippians uh, 3, 12 through 14, says, Not that I have already obtained all this or am already perfect, In other words, Paul's being sanctified too. The Spirit's working in him. But I press on. You hear that active pushing on to become more like Christ? I press on to make it my own. That it is Christ-likeness. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I, I don't consider, he says, that I'm already as much like Christ as I'll ever need to be. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, you want contentment? Press in. Press on. Press harder. There's a sweet, sweet worship song um, that a friend of a friend wrote and sang several years ago, and I, I think I'll love it to my dying day. When I'm old and senile, I'll remember it. And it's just saying, draw me deeper into you, Lord Jesus. Draw me closer to the cross where, where you bled and died. Share with me um, share with me the something of your suffering, for I desire an abundant life. And so that's my prayer. Draw me deeper as I press harder. I want to be pushing more into Christ and I am drawing me at the same time, actively working to become more like Him. And lastly, yes, the more eternally minded I am, the more contented I will be. This is throughout Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation. But there are a few in Philippians I want to look at. And then a similar one in Colossians. Philippians 2, 3. Look at the eternal. Where the, where the focus is here. Okay, the mindset. Philippians 2, 3. Is that what I wanted? Mm, I've got that one too. That's okay. Just go to 319. Uh, well, maybe it was two five. Two five says, "Let this mind be in you, or have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." And then it talks about Jesus mentality, um, that his whole focus was on obedience to the Father and the glory of the Father. Um, it, it wasn't on himself and getting what he deserved and what he had coming to him. Let's just read through that. It's it's. Jesus' example, you want to be, we want to be Christ-like, here it is. So have this mind among yourselves, which is also, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. That didn't mean he didn't have equality with God. He is God. But it's saying he didn't insist 
that everyone recognize it. He left the praise and worship he was receiving in the heavenlies at the right hand of the throne of God, came down and took on the form of man where he would be treated with disrespect and rudeness. If, if people had known it was God they were speaking to, it would have been outright blasphemy, the things that they said to him. And he didn't lash out because God had a bigger, the Father had a bigger purpose for him. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Did you know the demons will worship Jesus? The lost who will end up suffering in hell will worship Jesus. It will just be too late. It will be once their eyes have seen him, and it will be too late for them to be saved by faith. And there is no salvation outside of faith. But they will still, their knees will still bow, and they will still exalt Jesus as the Most High God. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, 319 and 21 is another place we see eternal mindset. It's contrasting followers of Christ with people who are searching for contentment in the world. And it starts on those that are searching for contentment in the world. It says their end, what's going to happen to them in the future, is destruction. Their God is their belly. In other words, they just live for their own pleasures. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You see, they don't have an eternal mindset. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You notice it says this our citizenship isn't here. If you are, if you're a traveler going to another country, you hopefully don't expect, Americans are accused of this, but you hopefully don't expect everyone in that country to start speaking your language to you. You understand that they don't know your language and they don't know your customs and your culture and you just accept that. But sometimes we as Christians here in this world are shocked that the world doesn't give us what we want and doesn't understand who we are, and doesn't appreciate us. And as long as I'm looking to the things of this world for contentment, it's just not going to happen. My citizenship isn't here. I don't belong here. The Bible says if I'm in Christ, I'm an alien and a stranger here. My home is in heaven. That's where I belong. And so that's where my mind needs to be set. So here are some things to do to be eternally minded. First of all, think much on the greatness of God. If you're not contented, you're probably thinking too much about yourself or people around you or circumstances. Think much about the greatness of God and you will be amazed at what it will do to your heart, to your attitude. I love, this is one of my life verses. 
Psalm 27, 4, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek. Now, this is King David. He could have said he desired a lot of different things. One thing, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire, to, to learn in his temple. Think much on the greatness of God. That Psalm, David starts off in Psalm 27, 1, saying, The Lord is my light and salvation. We sang that. Did you feel contentment when you sang, The Lord is my light and salvation? If you meant it, there's contentment in that because your eyes are on Him. And if you can feel contentment looking at a mountainscape, beautiful nature, let me tell you, you look at the beauty of Jesus Christ. There's no contentment like gazing on the beauty and glory of Christ. Secondly, expect little from this fallen world. There's a book that encourages me uh, by a biblical counselor, um, Paul David Tripp, and the book is entitled Broken Down House. And he's just saying, this world is like a broken down house. It's falling apart. It needs a lot of work. It's not what it was made to be. When the Lord created the world, He created it perfectly with a beautiful purpose in mind, but it's fallen and it's, it's ruined. But He's working to restore all things to the purpose He made them for. He's working to redeem out of this fallen world a people, a nation, a people of His own who belong to Him, who see and love His glory. But I can't expect the world around me to be all going my way. It's like a broken down house. And so if I'm expecting a lot out of this world, I'm going to be disappointed. Uh, Jeremiah, the Lord says through Jeremiah to Israel, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. In other words, they've gone... To look for satisfaction, for contentment, for help, for deliverance, for security outside me in the world. And that's like a broken well. It can't even hold water. All they're going to bring up is dust every time. And yet, here I am, their creator, just waiting to give them all they need, and they've forsaken me. That's what we do when I turn away from the Lord to the world, and I have expectations from the world, and I think the world's going to give me security. I'm turning to a broken cistern that holds no water. Third, expect little from yourself outside Christ. Jesus himself said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul, with so much wisdom in Romans 7, said, in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. On my own, apart from Christ, I'm hopeless. So I don't need to be expecting a whole lot from me. If I do, I'm going to be really disappointed and frustrated and feel worthless. I need to get my eyes off me because I'm I'm way too big in my eyes if that's what I'm doing. And I need to get my eyes on my big God. Expect little from yourself outside of Christ. Fourth, this is a big one. If you don't struggle with this one, raise your hand. I want to know. I'll give you the microphone. (laughs) Don't compare your experiences to others. You 
know, I, I went through a time in college where I was really discouraged spiritually because I had some very godly friends that I was watching, and I didn't feel like I could ever be what they were. Um, and so I started watching what they did and trying to copy it all. For instance, the music they listened to, I would listen to that music. Now, let me, I, I was a new believer. I was a baby. <laughs> And so in our infancy in Christ, we we tend to do this, just like babies, copy adults to learn how to do life. And so the Lord is patient with us in that. But it left me very frustrated because like a baby trying to do what mom and dad do, I couldn't do it all. And so I would listen to the music they listened to, and I would talk to them about how much they read their Bibles, and I would try to do that much. And, And if they had read through their whole Bible and I hadn't, I would need to catch up. You know, and I was so frustrated and feeling so low about where I was in Christ. And the Lord just revealed to me I was going after the wrong thing. That the reason that my friends were so godly and that I respected them so much is their hearts loved him so much. And all those things they did, how much they read their Bibles, what kind of music they listened to, it was all just a result, just just a symptom of what was in their hearts. And so I needed to go after the heart. I needed to go after a heart that loved Jesus that same way. And then, as I grew in him, those other things would come. I would listen to music that helped me love him more because I felt closer to him. But as long as I was trying to listen to a certain kind of music as a rule to be godly, I couldn't keep it up. I would start craving worldly music instead and then feel rotten, you know? And so it's all about really where my heart is. And when I'm comparing myself to others, I can't see their heart. And I get my eyes off the heart and onto actions. Any discontentment typically that we have comes from comparing ourselves. If, if you're discontented, if you think you're, of yourself as poor, it's probably because you're comparing yourself with Americans. Try comparing yourself with Sudanese, Ethiopians, and all of a sudden you're not so poor anymore. My, my husband and son went to Uganda when Braden was 10 or 11. We lived in Kentucky at the time. So when they came back, Braden and I went to a shop in Louisville, and and, uh, this shop was really focused a lot on fair trade stuff. And so they had this fair trade market where they were selling products from Africa so you could support people in this African village. And they had this really sad video with sad music in the background, and it showed people in some country in Africa in front of their little shacks making these crafts. And it's supposed to make you just, oh, you ache for them and you want to buy these crafts. And my 10 or 11-year-old son looked at that, and he said, Mom, it's not like that. They're happy. They don't know they're poor. A lot of wisdom there, you know. They don't. Those people, he had seen fellow believers in Africa who lived in little one-room shacks who had so much joy. They didn't need our money. In fact, we need their Christ. (laughs) We need their wisdom. Is what what needs to happen. I love this verse. You know, at the at the end of John, when Jesus is resurrected and he's restored Peter to fellowship with himself, and he tells Peter that in Peter's old age he will be martyred. And Peter, being a lot like me, says, well, "What about that guy behind us, John? What about him, Lord?" <laughs> When Peter, it says when Peter, John 21, 21 and 22, when Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Peter's going, well, I just heard I'm going to die a horrible death. I hope that man is too. 
man. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. If that person has more money than you, what is that to you? You follow him. If that person has a husband who's home more than your husband, what is that to you? You follow Christ. If that person is engaged and you don't even have a prospective boyfriend anywhere on the horizon, what is that to you? You follow Christ and you will be content. And lastly, focus on Christ's grace, not on your difficulties. I have a bad habit of being a navel gazer. It's just really getting focused on what's not going right in my life and on me, 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 and what I need to do about it. And I can even do it spiritually if I'm struggling with a particular sin and I just keep on having this sinful attitude over and over again. I can get focused on myself and my whole prayer will be me, 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 me. And Lord, why do I, why do I, and me, 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 me. I'm not going to get anywhere like that. I have got to acknowledge my sin to the Lord, repent of it, and then focus on the grace of Christ. And if I have to do that 20 times in a day, so be it. But my focus has got to be on the grace of Christ. One thing that helps a lot with this is memorizing and meditating on Scripture. And I would just urge you, if there's an area where you really tend to be discontented, If you really want to fight for contentment in Christ, it's really not that hard work to pick a passage of Scripture, a verse or two that speaks to God's character, to who He is in that situation, and memorize it. Or a verse or a passage of Scripture about His grace and memorize it. And that way, every time that temptation comes, you've got His Word written on your heart and in your mind, preaching to you. Second Corinthians twelve nine through ten. Carrie shared this with us. Paul said he had this physical problem. He begged the Lord to take away, and the Lord just would not. And what does Jesus say to him? He said to me, "My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness." See, the Lord wanted him to be weak. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. So Paul says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. You guys content with all of that? (laughs) Sure. But when I am weak, then I am strong. So I want to end up with... share a quote with you. Let's go over this quote that's in your notes. And then I want to end up just addressing three different kinds of people here and we'll be done. Okay. So from the pastor, Jeremiah Burroughs, from his writings on Christian contentment, here's what he said that will keep us pointed to Christ. He says, is it not almost one, almost the same thing, never to be in want or never to be without contentment? In other words, isn't it kind of the same thing either to never lack something or just to always have contentment? That man or woman who is never without a contented spirit truly can never be said to want much. Oh, the word holds forth a way full of comfort and peace to the people of God, even in this world. 
You may live happy lives in the midst of all the storms and tempests in the world. There is an ark that you may come into, and no man in the world may live such comfortable, cheerful, and contented lives as the saints of God. So three different people, that Jesus, types of people that Jesus himself addresses. If you'll flip in your Bibles to Revelation 2, we'll look at 2 and 3. We've talked all weekend about how contentment is all in Christ. And the more I see his beauty and the more I see his glory, the more contented I'll be. I was surprised several years ago when I did a really intensive study on the book of Revelation. I kind of started it going, well, is this just going to be all about where the end time is going to be and arguments over how how the Lord's coming back and things we don't really know because the Bible doesn't give clear detail on, but people start arguing and bickering over this stuff. And I was a little concerned about what I was getting into, but it was a Bible-focused, Bible-oriented study. And so we were just looking at what the Bible says and at handling the Bible carefully. And I was surprised by what happened because studying the book of Revelation, I, I wasn't really focused on how the end is going to come. The book of Revelation just shows the hugeness of our God. It shows the hugeness of his plan. It reminds me how small I am in the midst of it. And yet he loves me. But he's got this massive plan and nothing can thwart it. Ever. And it all ends in his glory, in the glory of Jesus Christ, who returns on a white horse with his saints. And no enemy can stand before him. The power of his word alone wipes them out. And as I just saw the glory of our God... I don't know that I've ever experienced worship like that and contentment and peace like that. And, (coughs) excuse me, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, the Lord starts off by giving, dictating literally to John, for John to write down different letters to different church groups. So before the Lord shows his vision and his plan for the end of this temporal earth, He had just some sermons he wanted to preach to his people in the meantime, okay? We're not going to look at all of them, but they address different kinds of either believers or people who don't believe. So first of all, Jesus addresses, I'm going to look at how he addresses those without Christ, those who have never really known his forgiveness and peace. Maybe they think they have. That may be you here. You might have said a prayer asking the Lord to save you somewhere along the way. Maybe somebody told you words to pray and you said them and you got baptized. But you never really repented of your sin and came under the authority of Jesus. If that's you, here's what he says. Revelation three fifteen through 20. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's a term of judgment there. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. 
so that you may be rich in white garments. That's a reference to, to righteousness, purity, that we can't provide ourselves. We need it from Jesus. We need him to provide. So that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes. Why? So that you may see, so that you may have faith, so that you may see his beauty and his glory. Those whom I love, he says, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous, be earnest, be serious, and repent. Behold, some versions say, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him. That means have fellowship with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Sometimes people read this passage and make it sound like, Poor Jesus. He's standing outside saying, Let me in. That's not not the Jesus we see in the Bible. He's a conqueror. He's a conquering hero. He is the judge of the living and the dead. And yet he still says, Hey, Don't turn away from my rebuke because those I love, I rebuke and I discipline. Don't run away from it. Don't run away from him if you feel, if you hear him speaking rebuke, discipline to your heart. Turn around and run to him with all you've got. And there is freedom and there is peace in that repentance. That would be Jesus' message to you if you are in that lukewarm place. Okay, so a second group he speaks to is those who truly have come to Christ. They know they have. He saved them. They repented of their sin. They came under his authority. They're still trying to live under it. But they just have lost their passion. They just don't feel the same way that they used to feel about Jesus. The way Things of the world have gotten dragged them down and burdened them. And they just feel like they're trudging along in the Christian life. That's who Martin Lloyd-Jones is speaking to at the beginning, in the clip that we showed. And he's saying, you don't just keep going like that, trudging along. Jesus died to buy us abundant life. Get it back. Take it back. So let's look at Revelation 2 and see what Jesus says. In 2 through 5, he's talking to a beaten down church. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So this is a discerning people. They've recognized when when someone comes and preaches something that's not biblical to them, they say, "Uh uh-uh, that's not the gospel. So they know the truth, they recognize it, and they call it out when it's a lie. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. It's not a word we would expect there, is it? So if I have lost my affection for him, if I'm not feeling love for Jesus, that's a sinful heart. 
He purchased for me a new heart that loves him. The first and greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so if that love is gone, I, I have to repent. I have to confess to the Lord that my heart has grown hard and sinful toward him. And I turn back toward him again. Repent and do the work she did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, well, he, 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 this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he's seeing that they're still standing firm for the truth. He commends them for that. But he says it's not enough, it's not okay to leave behind your first love and not do anything to fight to get it back. And thirdly, the third group he addresses is in Revelation 3, 10 through 12. This is to those who faithfully are fighting for joy day in and day out. Sometimes, some days are better than others, but they are not quitting. They are fighting to enjoy more of the Lord every day, to live abundant life, and sometimes they just get tired. He says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Oh, yeah, okay. All right. I am coming soon, he says. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. That's what you're fighting for. In Galatians, Paul says, Let us not grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap the harvest if we do not give up. Let's pray. Lord God, there's one at least of each of these groups in this room. I've been one of each of these groups at least one time in my life, if not more. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy that calls us out that speaks to us the truth of what's in our heart. I pray, Lord, your word, that you would search us, O God, that you would know our hearts, that you would test us and know our anxious thoughts, that you would see if there is any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, show us what distracts us from joy and contentment. Show us what keeps us from living the abundant life, Lord Jesus, that you purchased for us. And let us fight to take it back for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.